0: Hi, everyone. As I'm sure you've heard, we have a Patreon now. If you like the kind of content we make, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash sexnewswithray. In the meantime, here's a bit of a sample of the kinds of content that you would get by subscribing to the Patreon, and it starts with a little bit of news. Hello, my fuck demons, and welcome to the Patreon episode of Sex News with Ray. We're going to start with my update For the first time in five years, I have been forgetting things and mismanaging my time. And I totally blame the high holidays for that because it threw off my schedule. But hopefully I'll be back on track with getting everything done by the end of this week. You know, forgetting things like that I had booked two podcast recordings on the same day and only remembered one, you know, stuff like that. But clearly it's all working out. I do have a big announcement. I don't think I've told you guys this yet, but I have submitted my resignation to Oasis Aqua Lounge. No, I do not have another job lined up no, something better or different did not come along. I'm already working like five jobs, including Oasis, including this podcast, even though I don't get paid from it yet. Thank you, Patreon subscribers. You guys are awesome. Like I have my latex company. I have my sex ed certification to to earn by teaching. So I'm planning some workshops and I have some really cool ideas for things I want to do with razor latex. So I'm very excited to be able to have the time and energy to focus on building up more of my sex educator career and building out more of those projects. And I have some really fun ideas for content that I can do that's for YouTube for Sex News with Ray. So I'm hoping to have time over the next six months or so to really work on those projects and really get that stuff done. As we all know, maybe we don't know, maybe we don't listen to every episode, I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. So this week I'm experiencing some PMS without the actual bleeding. And that is manifesting as anger at all the men DMing me, asking for my time. So in an effort to educate the masses, to my few Patreon subscribers, here's what I find very frustrating. And you're about to get some of my simmering low-level rage, my friends. Instagram is not a dating app. You are DMing me. I don't know you. We haven't met. I am not going to meet up with you. I am not going to get in your car. You cannot pay me to have sex with you. Also, I already have more than enough friends that I enjoy spending time with in real life. I am not sitting by my phone waiting for your DM. I do not have the energy to respond to all the hate, and you're beautiful, and I want to fuck you. Guys, I'm working. I have to use Instagram to communicate to people for business, so I have to check it, and that's honestly how I'm doing a lot of my communicating for booking people for Oasis, or just generally communicating with different people for the podcast. So on days like this, those CMs feel like unnecessary spam. Thank you for thinking I'm beautiful I'm unsure if you're hoping for a response or just wanted to drop a compliment and leave. Like if you're looking for a response, the only response I can think is you're hoping that we will meet up. I don't know. I don't know what you want from me. Tell me so I can decide to ignore the message or respond and say, thank you, but no thank you. And I think it's really, really unfair for you to put me in a position to spend the mental energy to reject you, because let's be honest, 99% of the time, that's what it's going to be, a rejection. And rejection takes effort. I'm sure, gentlemen, you know. Maybe you don't. But it actually does, because it makes you feel bad, because you don't want to be rejecting people. It feels bad to reject people. So it's just an like I look at my messages and I just think of all of those things. And I just think about how I don't want to spend the energy to reject someone. But what if I'm missing a business opportunity by not responding to them? So it's very it's it's just on days like today. It's just too stressful. So I ignore them every once in a while, by the way, I do actually respond to some of the more sexually aggressive DMs and I'll, I'll write it's kind of a joke, but not a joke like, oh, follow my OnlyFans. And guess what? They they never do. They just want access to my body for free. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Um, If you send me a dick pic or a sexually aggressive text and want me to chat with you when we have not met, you owe me money. You are asking for me to do work that other people legitimately pay me for. Why would I give it to you for free when other people have to pay when I have never met you? That's honestly devaluing myself and not fair to my other clients and customers. Like, I'm, I'm respecting the client. Thus far, the only thing we have in common is you think I'm hot. And that's not enough for a real friendship, in my opinion. So it's not always worth the energy. Sometimes people will reach out asking for legitimate advice, and I will give it. But that's free therapy. And there's one guy who did that, and he actually bothered to say, you know, check in later and be like, I'm so sorry. All I do is talk about myself. I hope you're doing okay. And that guy's actually pretty nice. So we chit-chat every once in a while. And that's that's okay. But it's still very much like a fluke, you know? I got to be in the right mood at the right time. And today is not one of those days. The latex people who DM me always start out nice and then eventually want something from me, but not to pay me, like to be their dom or their sub or to dirty talk me or someone for them to dump their feelings on who truly gets them in their latex stuff. And it's like, we've actually never met. We don't know each other. I know people are looking for friendship and I have so much sympathy, but on these days, it's just another notification on my phone. And if you need help solving your life problems, please consider therapy or a proper coach, not a stranger on the internet. If you are interested in going to Oasis, no, I will not go with you for the first time. I, I don't know if you're looking for a friend to go with you or hoping for sex that first time, but either way, that sounds like a really dangerous proposition for me. If you are interested in Oasis, go read the website. If you have questions, contact info at oasisaqualounge.com or the Aquaflirts account. I am not sitting here getting paid to answer your questions. I know you want a real person to talk to and answer your questions, and it is a real person answering that email and the Aquaflirts account. There's like five people in the office that work at Oasis. It's either Gina or Fatima, right? Like, it's going to be a real person. They are being paid to answer your questions. I am not. And that's tiring to copy-paste the website. To, for this other company. So that's super fun. Long story short, if you want me to take some time to actually spend with you or chit chat with you or dirty text you, treat me like the professional that I am and pay me. And another other news, season three of sex education is out and I'm super excited to watch it. I know that was a sharp right turn, but I'm just thinking about, I watched the first episode last night and I can't wait to get back to it. <clears throat> On that note, Sex News with Ray, let's read some articles together. Guys, I'm really mad. Let's read something that makes me feel better, and that's an advice column. So we're going to read an advice column together, and then we're going to read another article. This is from The Guardian on September 14th, 2021. I'm worried my husband's porn use has ruined his sex drive. He lied to me about watching porn and now only wants sex when he's already aroused. It makes me feel like I no longer turn him on. When I married my husband, one of the conditions was no pornography. We've been married 25 years. In 2018, I discovered my husband has been watching porn regularly for six years. I found out because it gave him erectile dysfunction. He said he would give it up, which he did for 18 months, then he started again. I was furious. We went to counseling. My husband only wants to have what I consider lazy sex. He wants sex only when he wakes up with an erection. I've told him that it is important to me to make love and have sex at night, too. I'm concerned the past long-term regular porn use has affected his desire for intimacy and lovemaking since he only wants, since he wants sex only when he already got a hard-on. It makes me feel like I don't turn him on. Sometimes in articles like this, I think if the genders were reversed, what would we say? She only wants sex when she's already aroused. And she says, no, otherwise. And I'm like, that's reasonable. But we also understand that arousal can sometimes, arousal is complex and complicated. Let's hear what this person answered. This is not necessarily about you or your husband's desire or lack of it for you. And his pornography use may not be related to his needs regarding the timing of sex with you. Many men are so afraid of not being able to achieve an erection that they approach their partners for sex only when they are already aroused. And for him, that may be mornings only. Pornography use can certainly affect a person's ability to be truly intimate in a relationship, but your husband's pornography use may rather be related to a struggle with feelings of performance pressure. Unfortunately, you may be aggravating that pressure. Try to be more gentle with him. Pornography use is extremely common and, unless it is compulsive to a degree where it seriously interferes with a person's life, it will probably not detract from his ability to maintain a sexual relationship with someone. I hear that you are craving true intimacy, but this will not happen without a better relationship connection generally. Find a way to listen to his struggles and resolve your anger and break the impasse of fury and withholding that is a true barrier to intimacy here. Isn't that fun? So this was from Pamela Stevenson Connolly, who's a US-based psychotherapist who specializes in treating sexual disorders, which is super cool and super fun. And honestly, I think that's a really thoughtful response. I cannot stand the people who are like, Pornography is always wrong. And if my partner watches pornography, they are cheating on me. I find that to be an exhausting, tedious line of thought. Pornography is not the devil. It's a tool. Some people misuse that tool. And I think that like pornography also isn't perfect right like there's no perfect media though like let's be honest there's lots of harmful things being perpetuated in romance movies and action movies but you know with porn it's it's just that's everything that's wrong with the world and okay fine like i understand some of the issues with porn but anyone saying my partner can never watch porn because it means that they're cheating or they won't be intimate with me it's like okay calm down people can watch a little bit of porn it's about moderation So that's fun. And on that note, um, there's another article here that I think might be interesting. It is a book review from the New York Times. The right to sex thinks beyond the parameters of consent. And I'm very interested in this article because, as we know, consent is very important. And the conversation usually gets really diluted and simplified. This article is from September 21st. And it's by Jennifer. I don't even know how to say her last name. But it's from the New York Times. So very exciting. Americans don't think about sex nearly enough. This occurred to me after reading The Right to Sex, Amiya Srinivasan's quietly dazzling new essay collection. Talk about it, yes. Argue over it, most definitely. But Srinivasan, a professor of social and political theory at Oxford, wants us to think more fully about sex as a personal experience with social implications. Sex, which we think of as the most private of acts, is in reality a public thing. I've been saying that all along, friends. The notion that the personal is political was, of course, central to the second-wave feminists of the 1960s and 70s, whose critiques of sex Renevison takes inspiration from here, even if she doesn't always agree with them. The subtitle of the book's American edition is Feminism in the 21st Century, curiously not included on the British edition, which appeared first. That older generation talked unapologetically about morality and the patriarchy, since the 1980s, there's been a turn away from that approach, Srinivasan writes, yielding a feminism which does not moralize about women's sexual desires and which insists that acting on those desires is morally constrained only by the boundaries of consent. There were, Srinivasan concedes, good reasons for this shift. Moralizing has often been used as a way to exclude, to scold, and to discipline, wrongly imposing our personal choices and ways of seeing onto others. Laws enacted in the name of vulnerable and marginalized groups were an actual practice used against them, harming sex workers, buttressing the state's police power, outlawing porn produced by sexual minorities while leaving mainstream pornography untouched. But by focusing so narrowly on the matter of consent, feminism may have lost its purchase on some other fundamental issues. Sex is no longer morally problematic or unproblematic. It is instead merely wanted or unwanted. Srinivasan writes, We want what we want because we want it treating the norms of sex like the norms of capitalist free exchange. We ask only whether the parties involved agreed to the transaction. We neglect to ask about the forces that shape whatever they expected and desired in the first place. That is, needless to say, fraught terrain, and Srinivasan treads it with determination and skill. She wants nothing less than to remake the political critique of sex for the 21st century, to take seriously the complex relationship of sex to race, class, disability, nationality, and caste. She writes about pornography and the internet, misogyny and violence, capitalism and incarceration. She also makes space for ambivalence, for idiosyncrasy, for autonomy and choice. These essays are works of both criticism and imagination. Srinivacin refuses to resort to straw men. She will lay out even the most specious argument clearly and carefully demonstrating its emotional power, even even if her ultimate intention is to dismantle it. In the first sentence of The Conspiracy Against Men, she says that she knows two men who were falsely accused of rape. But after describing both men's very different situations, she says that she knows many more than two women who have been raped. With just one exception, none of the women I know pressed criminal charges or made a report to the police. And she doesn't stop there. The essay proceeds to make a number of turns, bringing in the long history of lynching and false rape accusations against Black men, the unequal application of the law, an account of the sympathy extended to the Stanford swimmer and convicted rapist Brock Turner and the Supreme Court Justice Brent Kavanaugh. Srinivasan persuasively argues that anxiety about false accusations in the era of hashtag MeToo reflects a larger anxiety, having only partly to do with sex at all. Middle-class and wealthy white men could traditionally trust that they wouldn't be subjected to the injustices routinely perpetrated by the carceral state against poor people of color, she writes. In the case of rape, however, and in light of recent exhortations to believe women, well-off white men no longer feel secure that they will be shielded from the prejudices of the law. This, then, is a book that explicitly addresses intersectionality, even if Srinivasan is dissatisfied with the common and reductive understanding of the term. Paying attention to difference isn't enough, she says. For a book by a philosopher that makes a vibrant case for theory, the right to sex keeps returning to the reality of lived experience. Srinivasan places the most vulnerable people at the center of her analysis, insisting that any action has to be judged in terms of its effect on them. She quotes the black lesbian feminists of the Kambahi River Collective, whose 1977 manifesto stated plainly that the ends did not always justify the means. We do not want to mess over people in the name of politics. When it comes to politics, radicalism and pragmatism might seem to be entirely at odds. But Srinivas, oh my God. But Srinivasan dares us to see how they need to be connected. Radicalism without pragmatism can be coercive. Pragmatism without radicalism can be complacent. She tries to reconcile the two, not by settling into a blithe sanctuism, but by suggesting that it is the worthy urge to be respectful of individual differences and decisions. Feminism cannot lose sight of the larger structures of subordination. Srinivasan has written a compassionate book. She has also written a challenging one. She describes how her students surprise her with their receptivity to the arguments of second-wave anti-porn feminists like Andrea Dworkin and Catherine MacKinnon. What might have seemed preachy and panicky in the 70s and 80s looks more prescient now, Srinivasan says, with the proliferation of free porn on the internet, which has become an inextricable part of a younger generation's sexual coming of age. Srinivasan doesn't quite endorse anti-porn feminism with its derision of pleasure and contempt towards sex work, but she does find something useful in its critique. On the free porn sites, desires get nudged by online algorithms becoming ever more extreme, more orifices, more participants, in one sense, while becoming more conformist and shaped by big corporations, in another. Some anti-porn feminists place their hope in legislation, but Srinivasan asks whether the blunt force of the law would be effective in the internet age, much less desirable. Against the power of the algorithm is the power of education, and not the kind that simply dispenses rules, futilely trying to counter the images of porn with wholesome curriculums. Instead, Srinivasan proposes the kind of education enacted in this brilliant, rigorous book. She coaxes our imaginations out of the well-worn grooves of the existing order. She doesn't deliver lessons from on high, but encourages to think alongside her, even or especially when it feels uncomfortable. These essays do not offer a home, she writes, but I hope they do offer, for some, a place of recognition. Honestly, this book sounds really interesting. I think I'm going to buy it and read it. I have like a whole list of books that I want to buy and read. Specifically... Because of, you know, it's in my my career to do so. So if you guys want, I'm going to read to you some of the other books that I would really like to read that I think are really interesting. I've heard that Polly Secure is a really interesting book that's worth reading. Come As You Are has a new edition that I want to update and read. There's a book, uh, it's like a graphic novel called Let's Talk About It. That is apparently a really great like introductory sex education book that I want to have just so that it's something that I can refer people to because you should read things you refer people to. And there's a book called The Fifty Shades of Talmud, which is apparently like all the ways that like this Jewish text is super dirty. So I'm really interested. And as we hang out, I am going to add the right to sex to my book list. And I think it's super interesting and I think I'm going to read it. So on that note, everyone... Thank you so much for listening to today's picture on episode. As usual, you know, spread the word. Wife Bay Ray for me on Instagram, TikTok, Razor Latex on OnlyFans and also Instagram. Sex News with Ray everywhere. Sex with Ray at gmail.com. This is the worst sign off I've ever done. Sorry, everyone. Shout out to Dave Meisner, podcast producer, editor extraordinaire. Blank and Air. Brilliant did the theme song. Thanks, guys. And Dolly Shots Photography did the photography for a logo. And she's super fucking rad. Thanks everyone and have a great day.